I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to John, John chapter 18. And I want to read the first 11 verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? After giving you an introductory study last week on the passion of John's Gospel, and as I try to present it to you as a narrative that uh, comes to us in seven scenes, it's like a play with seven acts, The act that begins in what was read here this morning, the garden, at scene one. And then it moves on to the arrest, then the denial of Peter, and then the Jewish trial comes into view before Annas, and then the Roman trial before Pontius Pilate, and then the scene of crucifixion, and then it ends with the garden burial. And we saw that it began in a garden, and it ended in a garden. It's in a garden, of course, we fell from adherence to God's word and will and to sin and rebellion, and it's back in a garden that God provides salvation in and through his Son, at least the garden context of his cross. And so this morning we come to scene one. We come to look at what transpired in the garden. Now you know there are the three other accounts of Gethsemane that differ markedly from this one that uh, John gives. I think I need to say that uh, I assume that John knew the other Gospels. I definitely believe he knew Mark's Gospel. 
I think there's some indication that in his gospel he uses something of the way in which Mark uh, states things and there's some, not so much uh, slavish dependence in any way, but at least in the sense that uh, he was familiar with the tradition that was in the other gospels, what's called the synoptic gospels. Likely he also had the other two, but at least Mark. So he knew certainly the tradition, but he also is looking to present it in his own way. And the way in which Mark looks to present this is very highly theological. As you're going to see, the major thing that he wants us to see in the presentation of the death of Jesus is that this was the voluntary obedience of the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. And we'll say more about those themes. He's the Lamb. And he's the lamb who lays down his life for his sheep, as the good shepherd tells us in chapter 10 of the gospel. So you have both the picture of the lamb and also the good shepherd who willingly lays down his life for his sheep. What I want to do this morning in looking at the uh, garden scene is I want first of all to say something to you about its setting. The setting in which John presents to us the scene of Gethsemane. And then I want to say something to you about the shock that gets experienced by the arresting party. The party that comes to arrest Jesus and there's a shock that occurs, something holy on their part, unexpected. And then finally, I want to conclude with saying something about the struggle, actually two struggles. There's the struggle that first Jesus has with the arresting party, and then Peter, his struggle with the arresting party. And I want to see the contrast between Jesus, how he sees what's transpiring, and the way Peter viewed what was transpiring. So let's begin. Let's begin with the setting. In verse 1 we read, When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Matthew and Mark inform us that this place was called Gethsemane. Luke tells us that it was towards, or maybe towards, or to, or between, um, well, the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives was the ultimate place that he would have gone if they had gone beyond the garden. And then he adds that it was his custom to come to this place. John also tells us that Jesus often met there with his disciples. So it was a place they were uh, familiar, familiar with. And uh, likely they were familiar with the place because this would have been the place that Jesus would have gone as he went from the city of Jerusalem and the temple to be with his friends in Bethany, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. In Bethany, that was also northeast of the city. So they would have to cross the Brook Kidron. They would have to go uh, in that road uh, uh, by the Mount of Olives uh, in order to get to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So that might have been the reason that Jesus met there so often with his disciples, with the route that he would have been taken many, many times before. 
But John notes something that's not mentioned in the other gospel writers. And that's the fact that Jesus crossed the brook Kidron. Now, it was the Kidron Valley that was between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. And so they would have descended from the mount where the temple was into the Kidron Valley. Um, and they would have had to have crossed the brook. Now, the brook Kidron has one other clear significant mention in the history of Israel. In the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 15, and verse 23, we read that it was through the Kidron Valley, and it was crossing the Kidron, that David passed when fleeing from his son Absalom. We read in 2 Samuel 15, 23, And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. So Kidron was the path that David took at the lowest point in his life, fleeing from the rebellion of his own son. Now another king passes that very same way, being pursued by a betraying son, who raises a small army of soldiers, much like David was pursued by Absalom's army. But I think the point that you see here is that it's Jesus who chooses the time and the place in which he awaits his arrest. Judas had gone out and it was night. And Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. He was going to betray him. And the language John uses emphasizes the activity of Jesus very markedly in his own determination of all that is transpiring. Not only in verse 4 where it says, Jesus knowing that all all that would happen to him, but even in the language in verse 1. In verse 1, we read that he went out with his disciples. There's another mention of Jesus going out. And that's in chapter 19 and verse 17. Turn, if you will, just the page. In chapter 19, and look at verse 17. Go back to verse 16. It, It tells us that the Jewish leaders, they cried out, uh, Pilate asked, shall I crucify your king? And the answer, the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. And then it says, so he, that is Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. Remember, there's all this delivering over of Jesus, of, uh, of uh, Judas delivering him over. Betraying him is usually the translation of uh, Judas delivering over Jesus to the arresting party, and now he's been delivered over first to the Jewish authorities, he's been delivered over to Pilate, and now Pilate delivers him over uh, to the chief priests. And in all of that, it seems as if Jesus is very passive. Other people who control are in control of what he's doing. They're determining his actions. They're determining just where he is at any given point. So they took Jesus, we read. But yet verse 17 says, and he went out. He's back to an active role that he's playing. And he went out, just as he went out from the upper room. Just as he went out 
with his disciples and crossed the brook Kidron and determined exactly where it was that he was going. So even having been delivered up to the hands of those that would put him to death, he went out bearing his own cross. It's like a inclusio, we call it, a bracket. And so we're beginning to understand that in every point in this narrative, even when it seems as if Jesus is passive, others are determining exactly what happens to him, he's the one who's in charge. He's the one who's actively engaged in carrying out this work he's come into the world to do. In theology, we, call, we talk about the, the active obedience of Jesus and the passive obedience of Jesus. And we tend to look, at least theologically, at the crucifixion as something that is passively done to him. But in reality, Jesus is actively doing everything, even his death. No man took his life from him. He gave it up willingly. He gave up the ghost, or he gave up the spirit, using the old translations. He gave up his own spirit into your hands. I commit my spirit. Taking that verse from Psalm 31, which is something you do in life. You, 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 you give into God's hands your spirit, living for him. Lord, I, your, my time is in your hands, and I give myself to you. I give my spirit to you. Uh, Jesus gave it up in death. He's actively doing it. At every step of the way. His going out to the garden was to ultimately lead to his going out to bear his cross. And even the language of going out to bear his cross reminds us again of John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb who bears away the sin of the world. Jesus is bearing away the sin of the world in a conscious, purposeful endeavor to do his Father's will, to drink the cup his Father had given him, to do the work as the Lamb who bears away the sin of the world in a conscious, active, voluntary commitment to obedience unto death, even the death of the cross. He sacrifices his life for the sake of others. But now we have a a resting party that comes into the garden. Jesus, and I should point this out, that when we first read that Jesus went out, at that point he's with his disciples crossing the brook. Just as David had a whole host of people with him as he crossed the brook. But when Jesus went out to bear his cross, he's all alone. He's all alone. There's no one with him at that point. He alone can do the work that the Father had given him to do. He alone could drink the cup of his sufferings to redeem us, to reconcile us to God. But there is this arresting party, and it's comprised of Judas, the one who betrayed him or handed him over. And then we're given this notion of a, of a cohort. Now let me get exactly the language here. Um, the language is a band of soldiers in the ESV. It's actually one word. It's a word that sometimes is translated a cohort. It's a technical word that in its most technical expression would indicate 600 Roman soldiers. Now I doubt it. 
that Judas was able to gather up 600 Roman soldiers. But there is some kind of a representation of a Roman presence in the arrest of Jesus. There are those who may have been part of a Roman cohort that he was able to get to go along with this arresting party. And along with Judas the betrayer and these Roman soldiers, there is said to be the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So even in this arresting party, there were Romans, there were Jews, and there's Judas, all in collusion to take Jesus into custody to secure his trial and to secure his execution. And I say that, and I have occasion to say this again, because of course there is this whole question of who killed Jesus? Who's the guilty party? Of course there's been, and through history, the horrid blood libel. Well, that's a different story, the blood libel. That's something else. But it's the thought that when the Jews said, his blood be upon us and our children, that that means that they alone are the ones who are culpable and they're hence to be most despised and hated and it's been a basis of anti-Semitism and I grew up with people actually calling me a Christ killer I never clue what it meant but I had that said to me when I was a kid growing up in a Jewish family that I was a Christ killer well, I'll tell you, I had no, no um, culpability and the Jews of the, had no culpability these people at this time had culpability of what they did but they weren't alone they weren't alone it was one of his closest disciples that was leading the way and there were the Roman presence as well and ultimately when you think about it who killed Jesus? well you and I who are Christians know who killed Jesus he came to die for our sins it was the will of his father that brought him to drink this cup of his sufferings. Scripture tells us by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, he was put into the hands of wicked men to be crucified, and lawless men, Gentiles, to be crucified and slain. Chapter 4 of the book of Acts, in a prayer, the early church prays in the light of Psalm 2. That the second psalm says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate a vain thing? The kings of the earth present themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. And they declare that in the light of that prophecy, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews and all the people of Jerusalem gathered together to do whatsoever your hand determined should be done. God put his son to death, not as an act of cruelty. But as an act of sacrifice, as an act of deliverance, as an act of atonement, to bring us out of our slavery to sin, to bring us out of bondage, to bring us back to God, to bring us unto life. And the thought there's any group of people in the world that are to be specially guilty of the death of Jesus is just simply absurd. He loved us. And he gave himself for us. But it is interesting to see that this arresting party does show an excessive show of force. Wholly not suitable to what these people needed to do. Who are they coming for? They're coming to Jesus. 
The Jesus who appeared in public time after time after time after time never caused a ruckus, never caused a riot, was always filled with mercy and compassion and love. Even when he was most badly treated, he never turned a wicked word with another wicked word. He loved his enemies, an example of enemy love. And yet they come with lanterns and torches and weapons. Luke tells us this crowd was led by Judas. Mark says they came with swords and clubs. Matthew tells us it was a great crowd, a great crowd with swords and clubs. It's hard to justify this show of force being sent to apprehend Jesus, a nonviolent miracle worker who healed and never hurt. Yet it displays the anger, the enmity, the wickedness of the human heart. Probably also the frustration of the Jewish leaders. Remember how they sent officers to arrest him in chapter 7? And they came back and they said, well, where is he? Did you get him? And they declared, never has any man spoken as this man. (laughs) They were so enraptured by his words. They couldn't put their hands out to apprehend him. Think of that. Imagine you send a group of cops out to arrest the, the suspect and they come back and say, he so charmed us. He just overwhelmed us with his wisdom and his love and we couldn't do a thing. That would have made them frustrated. They'd failed again and time and again. But now they had one of his disciples to lead the band. Now maybe things will be different. But you see, their ability to arrest Jesus did not depend on the size of the arresting contingent. It did not depend upon their coming with sophisticated weaponry to try to beat him and club him into submission. His arrest depended on his willingness to be taken. That's the setting we have. It's in the midst of that setting, of this party being sent out to arrest Jesus, who willingly had come, he's there waiting. It's the arresting party with their superior numbers, with their superior arms, with their superior training. Doubtlessly, they believed, hey, this is a, this is a walk in the park. This is a piece of cake. This is easy. Judas, just lead us to the man. We'll do the rest. It doesn't quite happen that way, does it? Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, we're told he came forward. He didn't back away. He comes forward. And he says to them, Who do you seek? Jesus doesn't even have to kiss him, according to John's account, though the other Gospels say he did. Yet Jesus identifies himself. It wasn't just that Judas identified him by kissing him, but Jesus comes forth more than willing to identify himself. Who do you seek? They answer, Jesus of Nazareth. 
To which he responds. He doesn't respond in, I am he. That's adding a, a pronoun that's not in the original. He does not say, I am he. He says, I am. I am. Not I am Jesus of Nazareth, I am. Not just a statement of acknowledgement, I'm Jesus, but a statement of deity. I am is the very way the God of Israel revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Who shall I say when they ask me, who is the God who has told me to go and redeem Israel from Egyptian bondage? God says, tell them I am. I am is a divine name. And there could be no doubt that's what Jesus meant because the reaction of the arresting party is the very reaction that someone would have when confronted with God. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back. I mean, they went backward. Jesus is coming forward. They're going backward. And then we read, they fell to the ground. Probably not backward, probably forward. Probably falling on their faces before God. This is a typical reaction of people who have seen a theophany, an appearance of God in some human form. Remember John and Yahweh the Patmos seeing the vision of Jesus? He fell on his face as one who was dead. There's just simply no question what Jesus is claiming. He's done it before. When he claimed that before Abraham was, I am. They said, you're not 50 years old and you claim to have seen Abraham? He says, before Abraham was, I am. And this is the Jews took up stones to stone him because he blasphemed. They knew what he was claiming. They knew precisely what he was saying. Jesus was taking to himself the divine name, the I am, which would be an absolutely crazy thing for any one of us to ever do. But it's perfectly appropriate when Jesus says that. Because he is the God of Israel in human flesh. He is the Word made flesh who came and dwelt among us whose glory has were seen. The arresting party fell down under the power of the divine revelation of Jesus. And we're not told exactly what they felt, but I would have thought they would have felt a little bit weak in the knees, a little bit helpless on their own. They're not in charge any longer. They're in the presence of someone so far greater. You know, if the other arresting party were just overwhelmed by Jesus' words, these officers were confronted with the reality of Jesus' claim and something of the reality of Jesus' glory. 
that brought them to know they were in the presence of the eternal God come into time, come into human history. So we've seen the setting. We've seen the shock in the hearts of these who came to arrest him. But then there's also a struggle. There's a struggle. Jesus has a struggle with these arresting officers, not to free himself, not to defeat these soldiers, not to defeat the officers or the betrayer. His sole focus is to free his disciples from any danger. He went out with them, crossing the Kidron into the garden, but he must go out to the cross alone. He asks again, whom do you seek? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I I told you I'm he. So if you're here to seek me, let these men go. They have no part in what's about to come. They have no part in what will eventuate in my death for the salvation of the world. Let them go. See, these men were primed for a fight, but there was to be no fight. Jesus did not come to fight, but to submit to the will of his Father. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He, he, he fought that fight when he entered Gethsemane and went apart and prayed and addressed the whole question of the, you know, there's one sense there was commitment and another sense there was a trembling commitment. His humanity experienced the, the awesome reality of what was before him. He says earlier in the Gospel of John in chapter 12, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Luke tells us he sweat as it were great drops of blood. And he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And having worked out that matter in prayer before his father, he was knew why he had come. He knew what he was to do. He simply waited his arrest. He could have summoned 12 legion of angels to come and deliver him. But he had not come to be delivered. He was not to be delivered from death, but through death to deliver others. And his struggle was that he wanted to protect his disciples, that they would not be in any way harmed, arrested, harassed. He wanted them to get safely away. But Jesus had an, I'm sorry, Peter. Peter had another calculation. He has come for the fight. He told Jesus earlier that he was willing to go to prison and to die for him. And he meant it. And he was primed for the fight. I remember he got this idea that Peter was a coward. 
I know he denied Jesus three times, but he denied Jesus after what occurs here. He's ready to battle. That's what Messiah has come to do. He's come to liberate Israel. He's come to defeat the Romans. We're all ready to get it done. But Jesus' way of doing it is not our way of doing it. He gives in. He allows himself to be arrested. He allows himself to be taken away. This denial was out of confusion, not fear. His denial was out of bewilderment. What in the world has Jesus done? What in the world is now going to happen? If I was in that position where the head of the army that I thought I was going to follow under his banner decided to cave in and give in to the enemy and now I'm being questioned by the enemy at that point I'm not sure what I'd do at all so I'm not in that guy's army he, he's, he gave in but he's ready to fight he has a sword in his hand I figure if you have a sword might as well use it so he takes it out he draws the sword and he strikes the first blow of what I have no doubt Peter thought would be blow after blow after blow after blow before all these people were killed. And the first blow cuts the right ear of the priest's servant. We're told he's a man called Malchus. You kind of wonder, why does John name him? Maybe he was a Christian. Maybe he was somebody well known to the Christian community. Maybe one of the arresting party had come to faith. And so John knows to name him would ring a lot of bells in the Christian community. Oh yeah, that's Malchus. He went on to be an elder. He went on to be a noted Christian leader. And he was once, he was in the party that was sought to arrest Jesus. What a display of the grace of the gospel. If in fact the reason that John names him Malchus is because he was well known in the Christian community. But before Peter has a chance to strike a second blow, Jesus intervenes and orders Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Luke tells us Jesus declared, no more of this. And then he touched the ear of the stricken man and healed his ear. Jesus stopped further bloodshed. Put away your sword. No more of this. Matthew adds that he said, All who take up the sword will perish by the sword. We got people that claim that they're Christians that think it's a perfectly proper thing to get themselves armed to the teeth in the expectation that there's some revolution that's going to come in which they're going to fight the American military they call themselves Christians but they're absolutely crazy and how in the world can anybody think that Jesus, this Jesus the Jesus of the arrest would be pleased by his people taking up arms in revolt against properly constituted authority. Seems to me Jesus settled that question in the garden. I'm going to get into the rightness of the wrongness of the American Revolution. That's in the hands of the Lord. 
But the question is, I don't see that Jesus would be improving in any way of his people taking up arms needlessly. Self-defense is one thing, but just coming to cut and slash and... No. The way of the Lamb says we don't do harm. The way of love says we don't do harm. He wouldn't approve if any of us ever tried to do what Peter did. He spoke against it. He acted against it. I served in the military. My nation called me to military duty. And I responded. And I would have gone to war if I was called to do it. But not because I decided I was going to get a group of people together to start a war. It's one thing when the government calls you to duty in terms of defending the country. They think this is a proper way for the country to be defended. It's another thing entirely to say I'm going to stockpile armaments in the hope of Armageddon coming soon so we can start the conflict. That just simply is so out of place in any Christian's mind or in any Christian's heart. So, what do we say to it all? I'll say first of all that we see something of the heart of Jesus towards his people in this account. Jesus' main concern was their welfare. He's going to die for them. He's going to give up his life for them. And the last thing he wants to see that in the course of doing this, any of them will come to any harm whatsoever. What a master. What a leader. I've been reading about U.S. Grant. Wonderful book by Ron Charnow, who guy that wrote Hamilton that they did the stage play in New York he wrote this amazingly it's like a I don't know, probably a thousand page book it's been a long time to get through it but it's an amazing life of U.S. Grant and you know of course he's the one that uh, the South called the butcher because there was so much loss of life and yet when you read Charno's understanding that a leader took every one of those deaths to heart and if there was any other way that could could have been done to stop the war, he would have bought into it. He loved his soldiers. He loved his men and wanted to see no harm come to them. But again, in human warfare, that's not possible. But Jesus shows his heart towards his people and it cannot be disputed that Jesus wants the welfare of his people. That the matter of his loss, he lost not one of them, has not only to do with their security eternally, It has to do with his concern for them in time. This is the compassionate Lord who healed the sick. This is the compassionate one that protected his disciples against their adversaries. He wants their well-being even in this life as well as in the life which is to come. We see his heart even towards these enemies. Again, he didn't want to see them destroyed. There's a Malchus. If there's a chance that Malchus can come to faith... The last thing Jesus wanted to see was bloodshed. He healed his ear, made him every bit whole. Imagine being touched by Jesus and having your ear healed. 
No wonder he, if he became a Christian. No wonder. No wonder. Jesus not only wanted the welfare of his disciples, but the welfare even of these enemies that came out against him. But in the course of seeking the good of his followers, seeking the good of his enemies, the overriding concern of his life was to do the will of his Father. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus knew what his destiny was. He knew why he came into this world. And God's purpose for Jesus did not avoid the reality of suffering. There's no way in which we're told that if we are Christians, we will somehow avoid suffering. We're called to conformity to Jesus, not only in the power of his resurrection, but in the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. And as Jesus steadfastly and committedly and lovingly took the cup and drank it, knowing it was the will of God, whatever cup he calls you and I to drink, whatever the lot in life that is his purpose for us, it's something we should drink willingly. It's a wonderful hymn that speaks about whatever God ordains is right. Whatever he purposes is good. And one of the lines in it says, I take content what he has sent. And I went through a time of great uncertainty on Friday night with reference to who knows what in the world was wrong with me that led me to go to a hospital. I might have questioned what the doctors were doing. I might have questioned what the nurses were saying. I might have had a lot of questions, but I didn't have one single question at all but the good intention of Christ towards me, the good will of God towards me, that I could leave myself in the hand of the Lord, and I was in a place of maximum security, safety, hopefulness, and joy. There's nothing that could separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And folks, if you cannot go through the trials and troubles that sometimes are light things, sometimes they're just temporary things, sometimes it's just some difficulty today, so you can't even get through a traffic jam without throwing a hissy fit and getting angry at other drivers. Is God not good? in allowing that set of circumstances so minor. We get agitated, we get frustrated, we get, what in the world do we think we deserve? Everybody should just move away and make a path for us. Whatever the mess is that's in your life, I want you to know it's God's mess. The God who loved you, the God who saved you, the God who drew you through the gospel to faith in his son. That's a mess he brought. And he has no hatred in his heart towards you. He has love and immense goodwill in all that he's brought. And Take intent and learn the lessons his grace designs to teach you right where you are. 
in the midst of that trouble and learn what it is to glorify the Lord in the midst of a difficult time. Jesus is the great example. And I think of oftentimes when I've gone into physical problems or difficulties, I've said to myself, it's not anywhere near what my Lord endured for me. Embrace it. Embrace it. It's coming from the hand of a loving God that he will bring you through and nothing that ever can occur can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God be pleased to bless his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we are thankful for our Lord's heart towards his disciples, towards his enemies, towards a fallen world that he would drink the cup of suffering and obedience to your will. Lord, your will was not that he would simply be made the object of bitter pain, but that he would be the way of life, that he would be the sacrifice that atones for sin, that his death would lead to life, would lead to reconciliation with you. We're thankful for Jesus. We bless you for Jesus. We pray that we would worship and love and adore the one who loved us and who gave himself for us and we would embrace him as the one who lays the trail for us calls upon us to follow him in the way of the Lamb. Hear our prayers. Bless your people as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.